Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome marketers, advertisers, and those who love them to Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former Chief Marketing Officer of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com, here today with my guest, Cliff Scott. Today's topic, an agency veteran looks at leadership and the agency review process. This is a continuation of our What Your Agency Wants to Tell You But Won't series. Now, Cliff has been in the agency business his entire career, including time at Hill Holiday, Town Silverstein, I-86, Mendelssohn Zion, the 4A's Institute of Advanced Advertising Studies, and his own company called, amazingly enough, The Scott Group, which specializes in branding and strategy. Welcome, Cliff. Thanks, Mike. It's an honor to be here. All right. So first question, Cliff, you've said a lot of marketers are maybe not the leader they think they are. Tell us, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think it's a good question. First of all, I think there's a real difference between tactics and strategy. And far too many marketers these days seem to get involved in the tactical executions. And in doing so, they maybe lose their strategic perspective along the way. The leadership becomes far too transactional focused, not enough strategic focused, and, and they need to be focused on the relationships that drive those, those, those transactions. Um, I'm a big believer in setting a clear strategic direction and then letting the resources execute against that direction. And as a CMO, I would suggest that if you're really involved in tactical execution, you may not have chosen the right marketing resources. So, so I want to drill down in this a little bit because we've had uh, uh, some other folks on the show that have mentioned the same thing. And what they will say is, gosh, we're working on the marketers are spending way too much time optimizing the pipes versus the poetry. Or we're caught up in this massive dance about efficiency versus actually the marketplace and consumers. But there, there's not a bunch of marketers out there thinking, you know, I'm not that good strategically or I'm not that good at vision. They're all, if you ask them, thinking, I'm pretty good at this. How do you know if you are good strategically or not? Like, how can you look at this and say, I'm that guy, or I'm a really good strategist, or I, I'm really over-focused on execution? Give our listeners some tips. You know, Mike, I I, I agree with you. And and um, I, think, I think in great part, it's because marketers are focused too much on being marketers and not enough on being business people. Um, I had one of those epiphany moments one time at the 4A's Institute of Advanced Advertising Studies, where I had a guest lecturer who came in and said, you know, Cliff, there are no marketing objectives. There are no marketing objectives. There are only marketing strategies to achieve business objectives. And, and I think that's the key. I think that when you're focused more on the business objectives, when you're focused more on the measurable evaluation criteria um, that, that will 
that the business uses to determine success and less on things like brand equity and brand awareness recall. That's the sort of leadership and, and strategic orientation that, that good CMOs and good marketers have. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this and say, are you focused on marketplace outcomes and company financials, or are you focused on CAC, brand awareness, efficiency, all these other metrics, which would be uh, you know, engineering the pipes perfectly, but not paying attention to the marketplace. Exactly. Uh, so, so give us a question or two that you should ask yourself if you're a listener that says I'm stra strategic or not. Yeah. Good question. You know, it, it, it's interesting because I think much of our craft um, and, and, you know, there are, there are many different types of strategies, right? There, there's, there's media strategy, there's creative strategy, there's marketing strategy. My focus tends to be on messaging strategy, right? And, and the difference between them is that, that media strategy tends to address um, who the audience is and how best to reach that audience. And creative strategy tends to address how to stop people and how to how to express that strategy in a way that's compelling and and interesting but but the one strategy that that I don't think is changing all of those other strategies are changing radically and they have in the last decade the one strategy that I don't think is changing and I would suggest may never change is messaging strategy and I think it's the one that may be the most overlooked Messaging strategy is simply what is it that needs to be said in order to get your consumers to feel differently about the brands and about the brand offerings. Can I can I jump in and say I I, I think this is a, a important message for the listeners. And what I'm hearing you say is, do I understand the consumer behavior I want to change or amplify? Or am I optimizing my spending to reach customers? Is exactly. that a fair? Is that a fair summary? And well, I, so think, I think that's a totally accurate way of saying it. And 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 I think it comes down to really two things, right? Ultimately, marketing is designed to change behavior, right? And 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 there are two ways really to do it. There there are two buckets of of ways to do it. One is to project rational stimuli. Right. Rational stuff is lowering prices or offering a buy one, get one or focusing on features. Um, the other way to do it is through emotional stimuli. Right. Emotional stimuli uh, are things like how do people relate to my brand? What are the emotive qualities of my brand? Um, this is how we get people to feel differently about the brand as opposed to thinking differently about the brand. And, so and I'm going to drill down on this in a minute um, because I, I also I, I can't resist the next question. But I, I want to summarize this, which is so if you're out there and you're focused on CAC, customer acquisition cost, that's a good thing to focus on. But you have to know why CAC happens. Exactly. Like, like it, what's the story that is actually driving customers in and then what actually converts them versus just optimizing the spend? And, and, you, and, so, and you can change behavior at the behavioral level but it doesn't stick. If you change behavior at the emotional level, now it sticks. Now people feel differently. So tell me about this because one of your statements that when we were talking earlier is why messaging strategy is like teenage sex. 
And there's just no way I can let that go without putting it on the air. So why is messaging strategy like teenage sex? It's really four simple points, which is <laughs> number one, everybody's talking about it. Yeah. Number two, everybody says they're doing it. Number three, there are really only very few who are doing it well. And by the way, it's not all that complicated. All right. Well, you know, if I could go back and talk to my teenage self, I, I would, I would, I would <laughs> live with these four. So, um, so, all right. So we're talking about amplifying consumer behavior and we've thrown in the teenage sex analogy. Um, tell us, you know, what's the real key here? Like, and, and I want to tie this to the strategy comment earlier, which is, do you really understand what you're trying to do and then what the consumer needs to actually do it? So what's the key here? How do you get these consumers to move into an emotional space from a, a messaging concept? Right. And and, and again, the, the last point about teenage sex, it's really not that complicated. I think many of my colleagues try to overcomplicate this and make it much more sophisticated um, and as a result, um, increase their their consulting fees. I, I I try to do exactly the opposite. I try to simplify everything. And and I know one of your your prior guests was talking about the whole simplification. Yeah, um, that's Margaret Malloy. As and 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 the concept she is emphasizing that you said here was why simplicity does not exist in the wild. And one of it is. Everyone is incented to overcomplicate the story, and that is really driven by internal politics in the company, the boardroom, and everything else, and also wanting to look smart versus getting to the core customer feeling. So tell us tell us some more about this. How do you get to it? How do you do it? So, so it's really, really very simple, right? You start off with the premise that, that attitudes drive perceptions and perceptions drive behavior. Right. And if you can change that behavior at an attitudinal level, um, you'll you'll change it forever. But that's really, really hard to do. Changing behavior at a perceptual level is far easier to do. And that is what messaging strategy is designed to do. In other words, if we can change somebody's perceptions and let the behavior follow as a result, that's how messaging strategy works. And it's very simple to execute. Here's how, here's how you do it. Point number one, look at your current customers. They're behaving exactly the way you want them to behave. And the world would be great if everybody would behave that way. But your current customers who are behaving the way you want them to behave have a set of perceptions that are driving that behavior. Now look at your non-customers and see where their perceptions differ from your current customers. That's going, to, that's going to cause you to be able to see the perceptual gaps that exist between customers and non-customers. And the messaging strategy is just designed to change and affect that. Well, is, this, is this based on hard research or focus groups or what? Like, how do you how do you find this perception gap? Because you can look at your current customers and say, this is great. You know, Cliff comes into the store 12 times a year, once a month. He's like clockwork. He shows up every Tuesday, buys the same thing from us. We love this guy. How do I figure out the difference between Cliff and, you know, someone who's not Cliff? 
Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in qualitative research as opposed yeah. to quantitative research. I think I think quantitative research is terrific in understanding what people do, but it doesn't do a great job in in telling us why they do what they do. And I had a client once. I I, I moderate uh, my own focus groups. I moderate my own interviews. Um, I had a client once say to me. Why, why don't you just ask them why they do what they do? And the answer is, is because human beings don't know why. They yeah, no one knows. When you go to the grocery store and you're going to buy a hundred things, you don't think exactly why on each one. So, so give, me, give me an example of somebody who is not one of your clients, who, who you think is doing this attitudes drive perception and perception by, drives behavior well. Like give us a live example. Well, so 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 let's look at um, some of the great brands of our time today, right? Let's look at Apple, or let's look at Starbucks, or let's look at Lexus, or or even Netflix. Um, none of those brands are doing things where their offerings are so distinctly different that that intellectually we can come to it and say. Um, it's it's all about the features. The truth is is that it's all the way it, it, it's all about how we feel about those brands that causes us to behave differently toward them. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, "Oh, I love my iPhone," right? You don't hear people saying, "Oh, I love my Android." It, 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 words just doesn't don't come out of your mouth that way and 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 the same thing about Starbucks I mean you, you know selling coffee it's selling coffee but no you people love being in the being in the environment that Starbucks creates or or people love their Lexus dealer experience so so those are those are expressions of of the emotional side of it can I make a jump uh, since you have talked about Lexus I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on one of my my favorite categories to pick on which is who, who's doing it poorly? And I would say a lot of the autos do it poorly because they are selling. Uh, all the ads are essentially the same, which is this is the best in class of small family seats five with cup holders and $100 off and this kind of financing. And also, look, it looks great. And everyone stops on the street to look at it. Is is that a, is that an that's my example. Give us your example of some category or, or group that's doing it badly. Oh, I think, you know, it's interesting. I I. There, there are two recent examples of, of rebrands that have happened that, that are just um, borderline terrible, right? The, the, the most recent one is, is Elon Musk changing Twitter to X. Yeah, yes. Elon may be an engineering genius, but he's no marketing genius, that's for sure. And, and, and then the other one that I saw was, was HBO Max, which yeah. was you know, where I went to for my streaming video for HBO. Yeah, Righteous Gemstone. Decided uh -huh. that they would drop one of the two names and they chose to keep Max instead of HBO. It, 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 these are things that just make no sense and, and um, probably, probably point to the fact that ego gets in the way far more often than it should when it comes to branding and when it comes to messaging. Look, I agree with you on X, and I understand the concept of X is it's going to be more than Twitter. But until you have more than Twitter, you might not want to change the Twitter brand because when you add something else, in, now you're going to have to branch out on X. So I'm I'm totally with you. I I know you have a story about Men's Warehouse, so let's let's hear your Men's Warehouse story. 
you know, the men's warehouse was was probably one of the most fulfilling engagements of my career. Um, it was it was back in the early two thousands, and um, for for those who don't know it, the men's warehouse is the largest specialty men's apparel retailer in the world. Um, they they are the category killer when it comes to men's specialty apparel, and for about thirty five years. Um, their same store comparative sales quarter by quarter had continued to increase up until the point where they didn't. And then they started uh, experiencing some erosion in their sales. They didn't know why they had been on this successful trajectory forever. And I led the strategic team alongside of a very talented creative director up in San Francisco, a guy named Greg Wilson, who owned a, a small agency boutique called Red Ball Tiger. And, and what we did is we understood that the men's warehouse was all about low prices. Um, in fact, at the end of their commercials for 35 years, George Zimmer, their founder and spokesman. You like the way you look. You'll like the way you look. Well, that's interesting because the original tagline was, I guarantee it. Oh, all right. And it was George Zimmer guaranteeing low prices. But what happened over time is that the world divided. The world divided between those who thought cheap suits were a good thing and cheap suits were a bad thing. And, and the result was that we couldn't move non-customers into the customer bucket anymore without changing the promise. And the promise then had to, had to change from being about low prices to addressing what most men exhibited in their buying profile, which is they're, they're, they're not very confident and they're virtually insecure about buying clothing and apparel. It's why many men take their spouses with them to the department store in order to buy suits and sport coats. So so the change, as you just talked about it, from I guarantee it, which was low prices, to you're going to like the way you look, I guarantee it, was a change from rational to emotional. That's interesting. Thank you for that story. Let's now flip this over to You've been in a lot of agency reviews. Give us a brief overview of best and worst practices. And like, how, when should marketers even think about doing a review or not? And, you know, and I'll start by saying one of my, I've never fired the creative agency when I've started in a, in a company because I think that puts all the burden on the creative to fix the company. So, so, so talk about agency reviews in any way you want, but give our, our listeners some insights into when, how, and why? Well, let's let's start with the fact that that um, it seems like a lot of marketers these days um, think that an agency review is all about going on a hunt for free ideas. Um, it's not, and it's not free. In fact, uh, one of the it's definitely not free to the agencies in the RFP. So. Well, it's not even free for for the marketers. Um, in a recent study that came out from the ANA and the Four A's, uh, it, it, it was uh, estimated that clients spend roughly four hundred thousand dollars to conduct an agency review, close to close to half a million dollars on things like staffing changes and research expenses and travel expenses and disruptions and delays to their strategic initiatives and external consultants and on and on. So, so number one, if you think it's about free ideas, 
those free ideas aren't free. Number two, if you're out shopping for ideas, and I think this goes back to your point, Mike, what happens if you fall in love with that idea and you put it out into the marketplace and it doesn't work or it turns out to have unanticipated consequences? Well, now you've selected an agency based on ideas or based on an idea and, and you have no idea or, or you have no confidence that the agency is going to be able to come up with a replacement concept or with a plan B, so to speak. So, so instead, of, instead of selecting agencies based on ideas, I think agency selection and agency reviews should be based on thinking, insights, understanding the challenges that your company is facing. Um, it's really more like getting married than it is like looking for a one night stand. All right. I'm going to move on right past that because we already did the teenager thing. So um, when, when, when people are looking for an agency, it, let's say you decide I've got to go with this RFP. I got to do this. What's, what 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 did they need to look for? Do they need to look for? I, I I hear the the intellectual capabilities, the ability to be a partner, but also talk about things like industry experience, who's on the account, other things people should look at in the in the in the process. Well, the first thing that I've never understood is, you you know, we live now in a marketing environment where where there are probably the three most popular terms are authenticity, transparency. And sustainability. So yes, I'm, I'm sustainably, <laughs> sustainably, authentically transparent. That's what I am on this show. I'm going to set sustainability off to the side for a moment. But but in an environment where transparency and authenticity are so important, I don't understand why clients, when they're looking for a new agency, are so opaque. Right? They, for example, they refuse to tell the agencies who they're competing against. They refuse to tell the agency what their evaluation criteria is going to be. They refuse to tell the agency who in their company is going to make the decision. Um, and sometimes they won't even divulge how much how much an agency is going to get paid if they win the review, right? So, so, so I mean, imagine if a CEO gave a CMO similar types of constraints and coming up with a strategy for the company, right? Well, we're not going to tell you who your customers are or how your customer is different from, from the non-customers. And we're not going to tell you the metrics we're going to use to evaluate your performance. We just want you to do a lot of guessing and hope that you land on the target. It's, it, it, you know, the, the, the idea here is, is work with the agencies in order to try to make them great. Work with the agencies in order to, to eliminate the guesswork and in order to allow them to be smart and allow them to, to perform at the level that you want them to that you want them to perform when they come in and make your final presentation. And then what on the other side of this, what should the agencies be doing best or worst? Yeah, I, I you know, I think agencies, um, I could I could go on and on about this. I don't think they're asking the right questions. I think they're they're chasing everything that moves. I don't think that they understand what the decision making criteria is. Um, you, you know, one of the interesting things, and I work closely with a company called the Artemis Partnership. One of the interesting things that that our research shows is only about 28% of the decision-making criteria is all about the solution. 
72% really has to do with things, and this goes back to the emotional issues, yeah. has to do with things like chemistry and relationship and politics and understanding me. So, so um, you know, it, it, yet, yet even with that understanding, even with that knowledge, agencies are famous for, you know, revising the presentation deck at three in the morning as they're, as they're flying. It's to, a rite of passage. It's a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. You know, I think it's just a matter of of um, working with the suite of agencies. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I've never understood is that if I was a CMO, and Mike, you can you can maybe speak to this better than I can. But if I'm a CMO and now I'm I'm bringing in my CEO into these final presentations, don't I want those presentations to be as great as they could possibly be? Isn't the greatness of those presentations a reflection upon me? So, so instead of, you know, being very opaque about it and having them guess at what they think are the problems or the right solutions, why, why don't you work with them in order to help make them great? I think that's a super point. But I will tell you, if I was not the final decider on that, I really didn't want the job because I don't want someone coming in over me who doesn't actually know the agency business actually making the decision for me because then it's it's not really my call. So so, but I, I do think there's exposure to the agency that's important, but not the decision. So I want to, I want to, as as we move towards the end of the show, funniest story you can tell on the air if you choose. And if you don't want to tell a funny story, you can pick up the second part of the question, which is practical advice for our listeners that we haven't talked about so far. So two part question, you can do both or one, but you have to pick at least one. I, I can, I can give you both of them and, and, okay. you know, um, Funny stories, uh, probably all the funny stories I'm not able to tell because of confidentiality. I get it, I get it, sadly. I don't want to embarrass my clients and things like this. But there was a time uh, back when Michael Jordan was still playing basketball when a company called Bijan, Bijan Fragrances, had signed a licensing agreement with Michael Jordan and had gotten in touch with me. I was working in business development and strategy for, for Mendelssohn's Zion, the last agency I worked with. And, and they had asked me if we would be interested in pitching the business. It was going to be a fairly sizable spend. It was eight figures coming out of the box. And, and I walked down the hallway to sit down with the creative partner of the agency. And I said to him, you know, what, what do you think? Let's go after this great piece of business. This is going to be big revenue. And he looked at me and he said that there was no way he was going to create an advertising campaign for a Michael Jordan fragrance because he was convinced that there was no way consumers could imagine it would smell anything different than a locker room full of sweaty professional basketball players. And, and so I had to go back to the client and explain that we were going to pass on it. And my first excuse was pretty lame that we were, you know, we were too busy and we couldn't do it. And, and she, 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 she kept, you know, taking down the hurdles. She kept saying, well, okay, then we'll pass on the credentials, but we want you to come to the first meeting. And I had to pass on that. Okay. You don't have to come to the first meeting, but we'll admit you to the finals. And I had to pass on that. And I think what it, what it taught me more than anything was the power of no. Yeah. Uh, no can be very seductive in, in any sort of agency client relationship. And and uh, th that's what it was here. We we ultimately passed on it and 
the creative director was right. The Michael Jordan fragrance was never something that that proved out to be able to work. All right. So, so your practical advice, I've got I've got five thoughts that I'd love to leave the audience with. Okay. But thought number one, um, develop your evaluation criteria in advance of the search. Okay, this isn't about I'll know it when I see it or when I hear something that'll cause me to like it. Um, have a solid set of evaluation criteria and stick to that evaluation criteria. Advice number two, um, visit the agency at their office. Um, I don't think you can accurately assess the culture of an advertising agency without actually going to their office and feeling it and, and kind of getting a sense of it at an emotional level. Number, number three, um, seek a relationship, not a new campaign. Look for insights, don't look for ideas. And the, you know, this is something that we've been talking about. Um, these are long-standing relationship building concepts. Um, don't just go for ideas. Number four, and I think this goes back to your point, Mike, be the decision maker, don't be the consensus manager. Um, this, this decision is not going to be a group decision. This decision needs to be an individual's decision. And then that individual needs to work with the agency to sell it into the rest of the company. And finally, be an advocate for the agency. Don't be an adversary to the agency. Um, far too many relationships seem to be adversarial, but, but agencies really need that advocate within the client community. And, and that can be a very strong role to play. Okay, I think that's a great way to end the show. Thank you, Cliff, and thanks to everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for more of our shows on Evergreen, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube, which include an operations-trained CEO dishes on what he really thinks about marketing. A B-School professor talks about brand value, measures, and the metaverse. A primer on the marketing CFO, and finally, we talked about it earlier, the case for simplicity in a complex world. Hey, all you marketers, stay safe out there. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. Today's episode of CMO Confidential is brought to you by CMOcoaches.com. Are you a current or aspiring chief marketing officer looking to take your career to the next level? You should work with a CMO coach. CMO coaches are former CMOs who are nationally certified coaches. So whether you want to improve your leadership skills, develop your team, or drive better business results, we have the experience and expertise to help you succeed. To learn more, visit us at cmocoaches.com. Great careers are forged out of great relationships. Your success, whatever your field, relies and thrives on the support and insights of others. I'm Andy Lapata, an author and speaker on the power of professional relationships. In the Connected Leadership podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing people from around the world to understand the relationships that have made a difference on their journey and how their insights can help you. From Nobel Prize winners to Olympians, from NASA astronauts to peace campaigners, my guests have shared some captivating moments from their lives and careers. Combined with experts from leading universities, cutting-edge authors and giants of business, the Connected Leadership Podcast aims to inspire, educate and entertain.
Are you tired of the same old productivity hacks? Have you read the top 20 books on effectiveness and yet your work days and email inbox still causing anxiety, burnout, and even depression? Ready to learn the latest in brain-based modalities, techniques, and technologies to optimize your success and well-being? Welcome to the Focus to Evolve podcast, where we'll illuminate your path to spacious productivity and balanced thriving. Each week, we dive into deeply insightful and immediately impactful methods to help you become highly effective while promoting health, profitability, and well-being. Say goodbye to the trance of busyness and hello to your highest potential. It's time to discover a new way of accelerating your mission, growth, and purpose. Join us on the Focus to Evolve podcast and get ready to live your most joyful, productive, and fulfilling life.